You can report them to HR if you're lucky enough to have an HR department. You can tell your friends. You can make it public. You can rebuff him. And it's probably going to redound negatively to you and not do a damn thing to him. Absolutely. And so so it's really important to understand that the message that we are sent all the time in our personal lives, in personal interactions, in our own jobs, and then nationally, politically, is no one cares if this happened to you. Not only that, that you're doing yourself a disservice by um, reporting it or sharing it. And, and Sarah Wildman, I encourage people to check out her piece oh, in Vox incredible piece. about what it's like to be a reporter and and try to report on your own sexual harassment and to really well-educated peers who are vote liberally uh, or progressively, by and large, or at least are touted as doing such, and yet uh, refuse to listen. Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm late. The train's Shut up. You're here. And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I am so thrilled to be able to bring you this episode in a time of just terrifying politics and all of these sexual harassment scandals, um, some of which have hit really close to home for me. I'm so happy to be able to turn to certain journalists who have enormous amounts of experience covering these issues. So it's contextualized in a way that's accurate and um, resonates and also to have such a clear point of view, whether or not I always agree with them doesn't really matter, but they're people who I can trust and rely on. And it it actually, in fact, it's great when I don't because it, it, it forces me to think about issues in a new way. I'm so thrilled to bring you this special episode with Rebecca Traster, who is a phenomenal writer. I highly recommend you check out her um, column. She's a writer at large for New York Magazine and New York Magazine's um, online offshoot, The Cut. She's also contributing editor at Elle Magazine. She wrote for many years for The New Republic and Salon and The New York Observer, and we talk about those as well. And I would recommend getting her books, Big Girls Don't Cry, The Election That Changed Everything for American Women, and All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. Um, she's currently working on her third book. We got to talk about that as well, as well as what's going on in the world today. Without further ado, let's get to it. Chap, chap. Here's my interview with one and only Rebecca Traster, recorded live at ACAST Studios. I'm really excited to be talking to you, Rebecca Traster. You are the best-selling, New York Times best-selling author of All the Single Ladies, Big Girls Don't Cry. And I don't know if you know this about yourself, but you are. Um, because Liz Smith just recently passed away, I was going to ask you about your experience as a gossip columnist. Mm-hmm. Was that one of your first uh, gigs? After it was one of my first journalism gigs. So I was—I I didn't start at a newspaper until I was um, like 24, 25, 25, and then I was a fact checker, and I didn't do any reporting on my own. And then they, was that at the New York Observer? That was at the New York Observer. Just and checking my facts. <laughs> uh, they had me do the gossip column. I think. 
The New York Observer was a paper that employed a lot of young people at a very limited budget, so it could yeah. only employ very young or very wealthy people. Yeah. And the very young people often had no idea what they were doing. They'd never been journalists before. I fell into that category. And so it was kind of a teaching hospital for journalism. It was like a journalism school, and they'd teach you literally like, okay. But that's a dream job in many ways. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was by many measures a dream job. Um, and so one of the lessons that they believed in was like, that Peter Kaplan, who was the editor-in-chief, believed yes, the, in was... the late Peter Kaplan. The late Peter Kaplan was setting up individual journalists with on beats that they probably weren't particularly interested in themselves, so they didn't come into it with a lot of highfalutin ideas that what they thought mattered. Um, and they set me on the gossip column, and I was spectacularly bad at being a gossip columnist because I absolutely did not fit into any of the New York events. I had, like, one... I was really... I was truly broke, and uh, I had one black skirt from The Gap purchased in college that could kind of pass as, like, <laughs> close to a black dress <laughs> that I would wear with an array of black T-shirts. <laughs> and I mostly, like, stood near the catering people who would come out. And then, but I had to, it, it was great. It taught me, I, I felt like a cockroach, and I'd have to, like, approach Reese Witherspoon and ask her about her divorce. And it was horrible. I hated it. It was miserable. But... Um, it did its job, which was like teaching me how to look at this room full of people who were like HBO famous. It was a real era of HBO famous. Yes. It was Sex and the City and The Sopranos. That was the era. And every party in New York City was the following same people. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights in New York City. The cast of The Sopranos, the cast of Sex and the City, and Donald Trump. Wow. <laughs> and, and that was it. And you had to look at that and you had to file something the next morning. You know, you had to get some kind of gossip item out of that. And so that was there were a set of skills that were involved in that, like staring at those same people mostly every night, four nights a week and trying to figure out what was reportable. That kind of, you know, it was like it forced you to figure out some things about journalism. <laughs> um, was Peter Kaplan at all a mentor to you? Um, yes, he was. He was a complicated, um, he was a complicated mentor because he's a really, he was, um, a very eccentric and by many measures, very exacting boss. He had a real vision for the paper and what role it was supposed to play in the city. I was not a perfect fit for the ethos of the paper. In fact, I was quite a bad fit by many measures. What, why, what made you a bad fit? Well, I was probably I'm not I don't think of myself as a particularly earnest person, but I was earnest in that context. <laughs> um, it was also a pretty male dominated paper. It was a very old school paper. And let me say a couple good things about that. <laughs> um, the the old school nature of it. It felt and one of my great female mentors who had been a previous editor at the New York Observer and who in fact was Peter Kaplan's partner and later his wife, Lisa Chase. She was a wonderful mentor to me. She'd been, um, she'd brought me into the observers, thought I should be a journalist. Like she ab absolutely set me on the path to journalism. How did you meet her? She, I was working as an assistant, a secretary uh, to the executive editor at Talk Magazine okay. when I was in my early 20s. I prefer the term administrative assistant. Yes. I actually, I've gone back recently to um, secretary because I feel like there are certain fields in non-elite professions where that job is just referred to as a secretary and that once you get into like fancy high-paid professions people are like I'm an uh, I'm an assistant and I'm like I was a secretary I, I typed and got coffee and answered the phone and like I was a secretary and I think that just because you're in like some fancy Manhattan you know elite profession there's no shame <laughs> in saying no, like there's no shame in it but what I will say is that like 
you know, at law firms and things like that, high-level executive assistants are really high-level. Yes, executive assistants is a, it's a hugely high-functioning job. Um, but I think that's true in, in less elite professions, too. I think that's true in doctor's offices and insurance companies, too. Like, you're often doing a lot of the managerial work and a lot of the organizational work um, that your bosses are getting paid a lot more money for. Um, anyway, I, I had been a secretary slash assistant to a high-up editor at Talk Magazine. That was one of my formative early jobs. And I'd met Lisa there. She was an editor there. And she was a true mentor to me. Um, really wonderful to me, a friend and a real professional guide. And when I went to work at The Observer, um, which was a place that was really beloved to her, you know, um, she had spent years there as an editor, and then she was, um, I guess that was before she was living with, but she was she was dating Peter Kaplan. Um, and she told me, it, it was a very eccentric place. It was in an old townhouse on the Upper East Side where everything was falling apart. And all there was no money, so all the computers were like beat up old computers that had sort of been strung together <laughs> to try to work. Um, my first desk was in the top of the stairwell. The second one was sort of like in an old fireplace in the you know in the living room in this place. Everybody was jumbled together. Everything was filthy. The archives were in the women's room. Like it was a really eccentric old place. And she said, "This is your." chance like it might not exist for another six months or six years or this is your chance to basically work in an old style newsroom like a front page style wow um you know his girl friday newsroom and and that was true there was like i'm so i feel so lucky that i got to work in that place and that i got to remember i mean when i was there the paper would get set on on tuesday nights it would it was a weekly paper and you'd go down into the production room and they'd set it out and then it went in a suitcase this was an era of computers right it could have been sent electronically wow but it actually was put in a giant suitcase on broadsheets and uh and then driven across into queens where it was printed i mean it was very i feel very lucky to have had that but at the same time it was also a very old style boys club and um i wasn't a great fit and that I didn't, I didn't play. I, I just wasn't. It's not even that, it, like, because I had righteous feminist principles. Like, I didn't play easily within a boys' club. Um, I did have wonderful mentors. I met great friends there. You know, really, really crucial friendships. Um, made, made professional relationships that have lasted to this day. My, I did have a very specific mentor. My editor there, Frank DiGiacomo. Um, Love. Yeah. Yes. Who who was wonderful to me and taught me how to be a journalist in a really profound way. Do you know what specifically you feel like you learned from him? Everything. How to meet a deadline, um, how to not lie to your editor because, <laughs> because he was totally going to know that you were lying <laughs> to him. Um, <laughs> uh, how to cultivate sources, how to call and call and call and call and call. Um, I mean, he really taught me how to report, I, which I've yeah. always said is like, it's like plumbing. I mean, people don't. And now my, my current job. What do you mean it's like plumbing? It's like a set of skills. It's not just. But plumbers are well paid. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's less well paying than plumbing <laughs> by quite a stretch. But it's like about learning how to put the pipes together or something. It's like, yeah. and in a way that I think I never understood, certainly before I got to the Observer, and that hasn't even really been fully expressed to me again since. It was really in that period of learning that I understood it as a trade. Um, and that you had to learn how to put the pieces together and you had to know what kinds of information counted and how your sources worked basic stuff about like what is on and off the record and on background mean how to do the work of you know getting the information you need and frank and then how to structure the pieces and Fabulous. you know and and frank was the person who walked me through 
all of that with um, tremendous respect for the young people who worked for him. It wasn't just me. He had a lot of young writers who worked for him at that point. He'd been the gossip columnist for many years. It was wonderful. Had a terrific writing voice. And then he still wrote, but he also was the editor of that column when a lot of young people were writing it. And for lots of us, um, you know, Frank really... He, one of the things he did was show us tremendous respect as young professionals at the same time that he was teaching this group of kids who knew shit about what they were doing. He was teaching us how to put together, uh, you know, journalism, but doing it with bo- both sternly and with affection. I love, you know, hearing ha- the sort of nitty gritty of what it takes to be a mentor. I did want to ask you, though, about... Um, You'd mentioned it in a, one of your wonderful pieces for the cut at New York Magazine um, that when Jared Kushner took over the um, Observer, you referred to him as a new, Jer- you know, a very Jersey view of power, um, because you know the magazine yes. got destroyed. Then, oh, sorry, excuse me, the newspaper got destroyed. Then, mm-hmm. did you think I was going to hold back and be like the newspaper? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but I was curious what you meant by a very Jersey view of power. Well, that was too glib a line, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it does injury to the many fine residents of New Jersey. <laughs> um, so, the, Does it relate to the fact that Bruce Springsteen tickets were really expensive? It might, it might have been written <laughs> in exactly the same week. No, in fact, I mean, that was a really glib line. Um, the thing I was comparing it to was Arthur Carter, who was the paper's owner, the New York Observer's owner. And when I first met with him, and he had been a banker. He'd like been a pioneer of the leveraged buyout. I have, by the way, to this day, no idea what the leveraged buyout is. Yeah. But I know that that's what Arthur Carter did and how he made zillions of dollars. And he financed the New York Observer out of his own pocketbook, which is why we had very little money, because he sank huge amounts of money into it every year. And uh, when I interviewed with him, I was really struck by the fact that one of the first questions he asked me was what my SAT scores were. And I was like, what? I mean, I was 25 at the time. Nobody asked me my SAT scores in years. And um, it seemed to me to be this kind of like fake merit thing. Like, who the fuck cares what my SAT scores? Like, that doesn't say anything about me. I couldn't remember them. He didn't believe I couldn't remember them because this was a view. And this was what this essay was about, was this view of what power meant, right? Yes. And so it was a real introduction to the kind of hierarchies. And, of course, the paper itself, the Observer, covered New York's power structures obsessively. Who, what what were the hottest restaurants? Who were the most powerful bosses? All that stuff. Peter was fascinated by power. Um, And the paper was fascinated by power and who wielded power over whom. The essay I wrote about that was that even though that world to me always, that's another reason I wasn't a great fit. Like I didn't much care about who was eating lunch at Michael's or who was eating dinner at Elaine's. Like I just was like, who cares? It's all bad food. Like why would anybody want to eat at any of those places? It is really bad food and I don't think people ever talk about that. Terrible food. And for such high prices. (laughs) And uh, but the 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 reality of having covered those power structures in that way actually helped me when I later in my career when I began to write about things like sexism and racism, you know, yes, um, and the more fun stuff about economic inequality. That thinking about how power works and replicates itself and how power enacts abuse, like how the more powerful enact abuse onto the less powerful, all that stuff was really actually helpful to my later work, which couldn't have been more different in terms of what it's actually about, but it, it examined the same kind of architecture. And so the Observer was a big entry point to that. But And the thing I said about Arthur is even though he was obsessed with that kind of status and fake merit to some degree, he also was really canny in his use of power because he had all this money and he owned the paper and he kept it completely independent. There was no 
conglomerate that owned us. We were yeah. not Time Warner. And he didn't interfere with the editorial, at least in my experience and yeah. the experience of many other people. He never interfered with editorial con- uh, content whatsoever. So even though it was an arm of his power, he didn't wield it to serve his own purposes. The same way that the, you know, the Gothamist and DNA and, in fact, uh, Gothamist was actually um, profitable, I believe. Yes, that was profitable. And yet he... he decided when they wanted to unionize that right. um, he would just cut them off entirely. It was right. crazy. In fairness, I cannot imagine what Arthur Carter would have done if anybody had tried to unionize the New York Observer. I can't. Is it's that like right? a different realm. Yeah. Well, it was a different, like the idea of unionizing at that point. I yes. mean, nothing could have been more foreign to, to, our, to the, the con- conception of what was possible. But when Jared bought the paper... Um, and Jared obviously also was obsessed with power and wielding his own influence. And I should clarify, I wasn't there when Jared bought the paper. I was long gone. But many of my friends were still there, and I sort of feel like I got a pretty close upfront seat yeah. to, to what went down. Um, I think Jared saw it also as an arm of his power, but that he was going to use it to serve his purposes and yeah. serve his political and personal, satisfy his grudges. And it was a very kind of blunt use of force, as opposed to Arthur, who was totally obsessed with all these status hierarchies, yeah. all that. Like, I don't mean to paint him as like, <laughs> Arthur was obsessed with all that stuff, but had a very sort of old money, nuanced view of like, well, it's a light touch that actually sort of gains you more in the long run. And Jared's view was much more like we will wield this this tool on on my behalf in a very bl- much blunter way. So did did covering celebrities and I had sort of referred to Liz Smith who was you know mm-hmm. often criticized fairly for for being rather light um mm-hmm. in her touch. Um but when you started to cover uh, elections Mm-hmm. Did your access change depending on the tone of the story? With politicians. Depending on the tone of the the most recent story you've done? Or, no. Okay. I mean, the only example of that, well, in part because the way I was a writer changed over the years by the time okay. I was covering politics. So my trajectory, when I was at The Observer, I was, I was a reporter, and there was a very um, direct message that, like, nobody cared what I thought. And that was key to my learning how to be a reporter. Yes. Like, this is not about your opinion. This is not about your... Ba- I mean, that's part of why he would assign writers to beats they didn't particularly care about. Um, the NPR accent. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, we don't have accents. And it was, it was all reporting. And it was all me going up in somebody's face and getting questions. So it was all about sort of gaining access, which I also wasn't very good at. But, like, you know. Um, it, then I went to work at Salon. Which, uh, and that was, was new. probably 2004. It wasn't totally new at that okay. part. It was It and Slate were the two online only. It was yes. very um, exotic because it was online only. And I remember many people being like, mm, but you're not going to be on a page anymore. And I was like, I know that's scary. Um, but I went to Salon. That was a wildly happy experience. And at Salon, Salon as an institution had a history as a place where you found critical journalism, where it was mostly opinion journalism. They had started to do political reporting. Jake Tapper had been there before I I got there as a political reporter, and he was covering the campaign trail and everything. But so much of what Salon did was like music criticism, art criticism, cultural criticism, and political commentary, Yes, which was a totally different beast. And suddenly everyone was like, but what do you think? And I was like, but I better call some people and find out what they say. They were like, no, 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 we actually want to know what you think. And I was like, okay, I still should call some people, though, because I don't know if I'm allowed to think anything. So (laughs) 
that was a different learning process of how to consider what I think and get bolder about bringing my own perspective to a story. But I, I continued to incorporate um, some of my learned skills as a reporter. And so I kind of became a, an opinionated reporter. And it was at Salon that I began to develop a beat, which was feminism. And that happened because Salon was one of the only, to this day, really the only place I've ever worked. Um, not just in my journalism jobs, but I mean, in any, really any job I've ever had, except when I worked at Bath and Body in the Mall, um, where it was truly- Wasn't it Bath and Body Works or? Yeah, but I just called it Bath and Body. Okay. I just want to make sure that we <laughs> respect their the, trademark. The works, right. Um, where it was truly, like it was half women at Salon. And it wasn't, and, and that was, it was a general interest magazine. And it wasn't, it wasn't like an effort that it was all women. It's just that half the people who were there, my colleagues, my bosses, the editors, were women. And I had a personal feminist perspective, and I started to write a little bit about it, and people started to read that, and it got good traffic, and so they were like, oh, you should write more. And so I developed a feminist beat. But that was mostly in those days writing about, like, Britney Spears and Whitney Houston. I mean, it was very much pop culture criticism from a feminist perspective. To some degree, I was writing about feminist activism and like what was going on with reproductive rights. But a lot of it was like pop culture criticism. And I didn't really start writing about politics until Hillary Clinton ran for president. And what, Um, what about her running really sparked your interest? She was a woman. Okay. So that was, I mean, that was, honestly, I was, I was forced kicking and screaming to write about Hillary Clinton in 2006 by my editor, Joan Walsh, who is the politics editor at Salon at the time, or the, the number two at Salon, I guess, at the time. And she was like, you're going to have to write about Hillary Clinton because she's going to run for president. I hated Hillary Clinton. I was like way left Why? of Hillary Clinton. Way left of Hillary Clinton. And, um, and I consider like, I had all, like... She was Bill Clinton's wife, and she was, at that point, my criticisms were she had voted for the war, and she had sort of made all these compromises on, like, flag burning and violent video games. And, you know, I had this, like, sort of vague idea about, oh, yeah, I know she used to be this, like, lefty. I remembered when she was considered a super, like, feminazi lefty firebrand. Well, it's so interesting because she started out as a Republican, then goes and, you know, tries to... Um, create a healthcare system that's economically a healthier for our nation, um, and you got completely slammed for being intelligent and effective. Right, um, and, and radical. She was viewed as a true left-wing totally. radical within a Clinton administration. And then I think what was confusing for our generations—I know that we're a, a little different in age. I'm barely 21 still, but <laughs> but um, was to be between the ages in all seriousness of um, you know. I was the exact same age as Monica Lewinsky mm-hmm. and was working in the State Department. I was like, I don't know how that can happen because I can. my boss comes in at 8 and leaves at 8. There's logistically no time for affairs. Right. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it was a little earnest. Um, and then seeing how both of the women both got vilified but also mm-hmm. didn't stand up for each other really, I think, set not only our generation in a confusing spot but the generation below us who were less privy to what children's defense fund was and right, what you know exactly. what the kind of initiatives Who were the Edelmans, that right yes, like, that, yes that Hillary had worked on that were extraordinarily positive right um and my baggage with her wasn't about the Lewinsky thing I basically have always had the view that they both the both the women in that situation just got shit on and yes. Bill sailed out of there like yeah. hot sexy president man and you were like and I mean I remember I went back at some point I reported Please on this stop looking at, at my face is up here <laughs> sorry <laughs> that I went back and I 
read something that Tina Brown wrote, I believe in The New Yorker, which she had been the New Yorker editor at the time, about like, there was Bill. It was like post-Monica, like yes. the center of the room, oh, yeah. radiating animal energy or whatever. I'm, by the way, Tina Brown did not write those words. I'm imagining it in my head that that's what she wrote, but it was not that far off. And um, I just felt like both of those women, and you're right, it was that they both got vilified and then also set against each other. Yes. Like Hillary was the carping sexless fishwife who was being justly punished for having like maintained her independent career because obviously she couldn't keep her husband's sexual attention and to the degree that she was embraced which she was with the populace right her approval ratings had never gone up it was because she'd been humiliated and she was seen as vulnerable and and she stuck with him and like all this shit right she's not just intelligent right she's a human yeah but also like a totally disempowered humiliated woman human and then monica of course was vilified as a tramp and a slut and all this stuff. I mean, it was horrible to both of them in yes. different ways. Yes. Like all the ways that you can, you know, insult white women, that happened to both of them in one direction yes. or another. Um, and meanwhile, he sort of sails out of there like a, some fucking phoenix, like regarded as like Mr. Sexy Ex-President. So that wasn't what I had a problem with. My problems with Hillary going into 08 were entirely about what I saw as her move to the center. And I kind of got why. I'm like, look, you weren't ever going to get to be the president with your health care for all bullshit lady. Yes, right? Right. So even though I, of course, like believe in that yes. very deeply. But she was, Hillary Clinton was never going to be the nominee for president, you know, as the figure that she was perceived to be in the early years of the Clinton White House or that she even played to yeah, some degree. So I got the like pandering to the center, but I just wasn't ever going to support it. And it was a and it was a tough choice. I wrote a really long, like tortured piece about how feminists don't like Hillary in 2006. Um, And that's how I started writing about politics, which is your original question, like 25 minutes ago was, is it different based on. But all of that was from the outside. All of that it was going to say when I started writing about politics, it was at Salon. It was because a woman was running for president. Here was my beat, which was like women. And then here was a woman running for president, which is we forget now that she's done it twice. Yes. (laughs) That like this was a shock to the American system. We, I mean, there have been, Shirley Chisholm ran in 1972. Victoria Lockwood ran in 1872. Um, I mean, this is, lots of women have run for president, but none have, have gotten anywhere near. Chisholm was the closest. Um, and the fact that Hillary actually came very close to becoming the candidate in 08, that is, we didn't, we didn't have any precedent for that. So I sort of got pulled against my will into writing about this woman about whom I felt pretty negatively going in. Um, but I was all from the outside. I mean, I'd call. I'd be like, hey, can I interview Hillary Clinton? And, like, no one would ever call me back, ever. And that was true. I wrote a book about it. I wound up switching, and I actually became um, – I loved both. In the end, I liked I, – so I was a John Edwards person. That's so embarrassing. Um, you were complicit. <laughs> I was so fucking complicit. Although, honestly, I, the one thing I can say in my defense is that I really liked Elizabeth Edwards. <laughs> and that's mostly why I like John yeah. Edwards. And, and if only John Edwards <laughs> liked Elizabeth right, Edwards. Right, exactly. And that I did understand that as the white guy, he got to have more progressive policies than either the black guy or the white woman. Like, right. he got to be like, hey, I believe there are poor people in yes. the United States and we should address that. And I was like, yes, my God, that's some radical left politics for yes. 2008. Similar um, to Bernie. Uh, right. So, very, very. Um, Bernie's hair is much less nice than John Edwards was, though. Bernie's hair. Bernie never. I, I take that as anti-Semitism. <laughs> Keep going. I'm sorry. Um, but all of that was written not with any access to any politician. And then I wound up writing a book about 2008 and the women. 
Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, Sarah Palin, sort of uh, sexism, racism, classism, and how they played out in the 2008 yes. election. The only person I had any access to was Michelle Obama. I went to Iowa and spent three days profiling her, which was an amazing experience. It was before. But then um, that was it. Everything was written from the outside. It was reported like by talking to other people about how they felt about this, but it yes. was, there was no access whatsoever. And that was true. I then wrote a book about that. and Big Girls Don't Cry. Big Girls Don't Cry. And that I didn't have access for that. I interviewed a ton of people. It's a reported book, but I didn't have access to the politicians. And then when Hillary ran in 2016, I was like, well, maybe this time I'm going to get to talk to her because, hey, I wrote a book and I knew she'd known about the book. <laughs> um, you know, people had told me like, she knows about the book, and uh, but it really took like sort of knocking every day for more than a year to get Hillary Clinton to give me an interview, and then wow. she did in 2016, and then after she lost, I had another interview, and now I've actually now I've spoken to Hillary Clinton quite a bit, but it really took a long time. So I can't say that there's any sort of like precise relationship between how I wrote about her versus the access that I got, except that I don't hate her. And I, I never wrote that she was like the neoliberal corporatist devil incarnate in 2016. Yeah. So that might have that probably helped me to get my interview with her. But that's not why I wrote. That's not why I refrained from writing that. Let's put it that way. Well, and also I think in general it felt like people treated her as if she was already president when they would write about her. Yes. And um, treated him as a joke. And uh, by him, I mean Donald Trump. And I think that that was an issue to be sure. But it is also hard um, because she really did have so much experience, mm -hmm. which is a positive and a negative. Right. Um, can you talk about covering sexual abuse? There seems to me a sense of power there and control that's mm -hmm. so um, inverse to what it's like to experience it because the helplessness of being abused and being in a culture um, that we've you know hinted at and talked about mm -hmm. of these sort of all male cultures where it's so corrosive um, and it's not just carried out by men it's also right. women and, and there are many ways we can all be complicit but can you talk about um, how you learn to talk to people who have been abused or harassed I'm not sure that I totally have learned how to talk to people who've been abused and harassed. How much is the how much does that the the factor that you know someone has been traumatized play in when you when well, you talk talk to them? I would say over the past few weeks, I've never had such a high volume of conversations about it as I have in the past six weeks because I'm getting so many messages every day since the Harvey Weinstein story broke from women, mostly women, um, some men, but almost all women, who are telling me about their experiences of abuse or harassment, some of them violent, some of them nonviolent, but clearly traumatic and sort of life and career shaping in their heads. And I'm hearing from so many of these women and, and I've never had that at such high volume before. And the only thing I can say is that one of the reasons that it's made such an impression on me is because I'm like, I have to write them back. Like yes. even, even if there's no, like in many cases, and I wrote about this recently, in New York Magazine, where you currently work in doing the, the, the cut, uh, you have a column there. Yes. And and I just wrote a feature about this where I sort of describe the sensation of having all these women come to me. And some of them are coming to me off the record and just sort of they want to tell somebody their story. Um, some of them are coming to me on the record. And I'm having to tell them, like, I, I can't report the story about your boss because he's whatever, not famous enough or there's too much of this out there and you really need to clear some bar of of villainy or or fame before it's considered newsworthy and you know it's horrible these are horrible things that make me very angry and upset about the way that the power structures are still working to um 
to uh, disempower uh, those who are already vulnerable and have already <laughs> experienced damage. But um, I'm trying to respond to as many as I can because I feel like it's really, I feel like people need to be heard. I feel like this is the, one of the things that's happening nationally and, and by many measures internationally because these conversations are taking place around the world at this point is that it's one of the first times. And because Harvey Weinstein was like <laughs> raping women all over the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he really, he did a number globally. Um, but one of the, um, one of the reasons that I think this is happening at such high volume is because it's one of the first opportunities that anybody's ever, um, one of the only signs that people actually give a shit that this happened to you. I, I mean, mean to, to a point of where I had to tell two reporters and, and a third reporter got upset with me that I wasn't reporting um, incidences that I had experienced. And the reason that I was not going on the record about mm -hmm. them was because I've had so many and there's one that mm -hmm. was so life-threatening that I would rather focus on that one. Right. And right. that's but you crazy. Had to, you had to differentiate. <laughs> between, it, right. Daily, not even just daily, like part of my everyday on so many levels from from physically endangered to just minor irritants to confusing because I my biggest downfall is that I am attracted to men <laughs> and you know that also makes it very confusing and sad yes. and there's a lot of shame there right. um, of wanting to connect and not being sure as to why what terms and yes. what the costs are and yes. what the right no I know this is part of what we're all trying to unpack I'm somebody who hasn't experienced when it comes to professional I was harassment. also in comedy like I had right. a, a, a fellow journalist um, said to me, I would never get myself in that situation. And it was adorable because, A, it assumes that you don't have a talent for something, and you're sort of saying, okay, well, that person who's a really good Marine shouldn't be a Marine, or that person right. who's a really good comedian shouldn't be a comedian because if they wanted to take care of themselves, they wouldn't do it. And the truth is, in comedy, there's so many women who took themselves out of the running, mm -hmm. including myself, because of the culture. Right. But it's dismissing that talent. Mm -hmm. And and I think that this is an exciting time, merely when I say exciting, because it's not the word I actually mean, but just revelatory to see people brave enough to be able to come forward. And more importantly, that people are actually listening. Right. And I think that's the sensation that's unfamiliar. I mean, we have to, and, and this is one of the things I cannot convey it enough. Women have been telling these stories oh, in both private and in many cases, public ways. And having the world say to them, we don't give a fuck in one way or another. I mean, one of the most painful stories I've gone back to recently is a reporter who covered the Arnold Schwarzenegger groping allegations back when he was running for governor not of California. To, not to be confused with the affair he was having with his nanny, right? right? This is separate. This is okay. groping. Okay. There's also the affair with the nanny okay. that produced a child, I believe. Okay. Yes. This is women who alleged that Arnold Schwarzenegger had groped them against their will. And the I believe it was a reporter for the Los Angeles Times had gone and interviewed them all as he was running for governor and they told their stories many of them at great personal cost and risk and fear and all those things there's so there's so much that redounds negatively to you if you're willing to go on the record against somebody powerful or beloved or where there's a political agenda at stake these women had, had told their stories and then he got elected anyway and i read a story recently by the reporter who'd gone to talk to those women about how demoralized they were had they done this thing they told their story 
and nobody yes. fucking cared. It didn't have an impact. The guy is still still gets the job. And of course, that's just happened with the election of Donald Trump. 20 women came yes. forward a year ago to talk about how he groped them on a plane and kissed them against their will when they were reporting on him. He himself talked about grabbing women by the pussy. He, um, you know, there were these videos of him looking at 12-year-olds going up the stairs and being like, I'm going to date her someday. Yeah. And it just, no, it didn't matter. He's still the president. And it's this metaphor um, for the daily reality that so many of us experience, which is like the bad guy gets the biggest fucking job. He gets the promotion. And it doesn't yes. matter. You can you can report him to HR if you're lucky enough to have an HR department. You can tell your friends. You can make it public. You can rebuff him. And it's probably going to redound negatively to you and not do a damn thing to him. Absolutely. And so, so it's really important to understand that the message that we are sent all the time in our personal lives, in personal interactions, in our own jobs, and then nationally, politically, is no one cares if this happened to you. Not only that, that you're doing yourself a disservice by um, reporting it or sharing it. And, and Sarah Wildman, I encourage people to check out her piece oh, in Vox piece. about what it's like to be a reporter and and try to report on your own sexual harassment and to really well-educated peers who are vote liberally uh, or progressively, by and large, or at least are touted as doing such, and yet uh, refuse to listen. Right. And so the crazy thing about this moment that can't be overstated is how novel it is that people seem to care about your stories and that there seem to be some repercussions for people. And that doesn't mean that the women who are telling the stories are out to, like, take away the jobs of all the men. Yeah. Um, it's that it's that somebody like it's like there's traction for the first time, yeah. like. Like some people seem to be acknowledging that this actually did damage. And that's a totally new experience for a lot of women is to be told your story matters. And that's, I think, part of why we're getting the volume of conversation that we are is because so many women are like, oh, wait, you guys care? You guys care? Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. I have stories to tell you. Like for the first time in their lives, yes. someone yes. cares. Oh, yeah. Your next book that you're doing, and I really encourage people to read all the single ladies and big girls don't cry. I wish that they were not as relevant as they continue to be, but it's really important to look at history. I would encourage people to go back to the Roosevelt's, if not further. Mm -hmm. But um, Big Girls Don't Cry, the election that changed everything for American women, uh, uh, which is phenomenal. And all the single ladies, unmarried women, and the rise of an independent nation. Um, Rebecca Tracer does an incredible job of delving into how class and race um, and how we pit each other, pit ourselves against one another in ways that are detrimental, but also all of the beauty um, that actually is, is coming out as well of women finding themselves to be full dimensional human beings. Um, I wanted to ask you, now that you are a hugely famous, celebrated uh, journalist, you've been on Bill Maher, um, and in all seriousness, people know your name, you get film and television deals. Uh, what is it like being in front of the camera as a journalist, and mm. do you have to deal with um, comments about how you look and sound and all of these things. I was just curious. Um, well, i.e., are you a woman? <laughs> Sorry, yes, that was I a terrible a question. I am a woman, and yes, I deal with comments about how I look and sound. Um, you know, I I'm not hugely comfortable in front of the camera. It's definitely not why I got into the work that I do. Um, it is uh, it's terrifying. I'm I'm scared every time I go on Bill Maher for a number of reasons. Um, I am not I'm not super comfortable on camera and it makes me very nervous certainly to be on live television um me too and but I also 
understand that it's something that I'm supposed to do if I want more people to pay attention to what I'm saying. And you know what? I really do want people to pay more attention to what I'm saying. And um, that's, I, I mean, it's hard to even, like, it's so strange to sort of give voice to both personal ambition and to say, like, wait a minute, I actually want more people to read me. And that's, and it sounds, it's, we're so conditioned to not say that because <laughs> um, it's so self-aggrandizing and, like, why should everybody read what I think? And, like, I think back to, like, my early journalism training where it's, like, nobody gives a shit what you think. Like, why should we care what you think? Well, I... I care very passionately about the issues that I'm covering. That doesn't mean that I'm always right, but I want people to engage with the issues that I'm engaging with. I want to reach people. And, um, you know, doing that kind of stuff is one of the ways in which you make your voice heard more broadly. And so I do it, but it's not with relish um, and it's not easy and it's, and it's often scary but i accrue huge benefits from it too so i also don't want to be like oh what are those benefits um like i get uh well if more people buy my books or more people read my articles then that you know that's a benefit to me professionally um you know it's fun to be flown out to los angeles to be on a tv show the the actual being on the tv show is is really scary but then like you're like, hey, I'm in L.A. <laughs> I'm going to have like a super healthy breakfast. Um, I mean, th- they're like nice things about that. Yes. Um, and to be aware of the power that you hold. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not pretending that they're not like that. That shit accrues. And it um, and it, you know, doesn't seem like shit from this perspective. Um, I want to ask you about um, anger. Mm. I feel none of it. I'm, a, I'm not an all an angry person. It's so I'm built the, of anger. It is the first time in a, a you know, a, a, an offshoot of of having to deal with so many frustrations um, and women courageously coming out and women being heard for the first time and men as mm-hmm. well being heard for the first time um, in terms of sexual abuse and, and particularly in the workplace mm-hmm. um, has been – there has been a surge in people, particularly women, talking about being angry mm-hmm. and – I wanted to hear about your experience of anger and um, if you're planning to write a book on it. I am in the midst of writing a book about specifically about women and anger and politics and social change. So looking at anger as I think an underrecognized catalyst for social change in the country, not just right now, but historically, um, and looking at it from all different kinds of anger, uh, angles, anger, angles. Um, you know, looking at it around uh, the the difficulty. So, so the question of of women's expressions of anger. We are conditioned from the time we're children to not express our anger because it makes us threatening and ugly to to men fundamentally. Um, and so, women are really encouraged to not sort of let loose with their anger and are told that it's a corrosive. Um, corrosive emotion that makes them very unpleasant and unlikable. Um, And I don't actually view it as, I I think anger can, like any fuel, of course, can be combustible and corrosive and blow up. Anger is full of, it's passion. But it's not, it's not the emotion. It's how one deals with it. And by not being able to deal with it and by assuming that it is, by problematizing the very idea that one feels anger, jealousy, uh, sadness, uh, hurt, um, that these are somehow negative emotions. A, they're just emotions. Mm-hmm. So they're healthy. It's when you don't get to 
articulate them to oneself in a healthy manner, that you, the choices, you, what you do with them can be self-destructive, can be destructive to populations. I'm thinking of, you know, a Vegas shooting, like right. that kind of thing. Right. But the, the notion that just even feeling angry is something that, that is wrong is a problem. Right. That, that it's tied to a lack of gratitude or to bitterness or to the fact that you're an ugly person inside or that you can't both be angry and happy, right? Yes. Like, I'm somebody and f- grateful. who feels a huge amount of anger, right? I'm angry. I've been angry for a long time. I am also somebody who's actually like, I feel like I'm a pretty warm person. I feel like I I connect pretty closely with people. I feel a tremendous amount of happiness. In many ways, I'm an optimist. Like all those things can be true simultaneously. Absolutely. But, but we are socialized to believe that if you're somebody who feels and expresses anger, then you must be sort of a like a, a dark and malevolent force, right? And I don't think that that's true. And I'm somebody who feels, I think anger has powered a lot of the work that I've done that I am proudest of, you know? And it's not because it's hurting people. It's because it's actually giving voice voice to something that gets pushed down um, in a lot of us. And and the other thing that's true is we this isn't a hard concept for us if you look at anger in men, right? Like we can look at our the founding fathers who everybody fucking reveres despite their many shortcomings. Yeah. But look at the sort of anger of the revolutionary rhetoric, give me liberty or give me death. I mean this is this is anger. It's fury at at oppression that is the thing this country is founded on. And we can talk about that with great respect and like, look at what this anger brought us was the birth of this country, which we then proceeded to build on the backs of black people and women. And, um, we can acknowledge and black people who are women, right? Who yes. Get, who get right. screwed. Who get screwed in that formulation. <laughs> um, and, uh, this is, we can acknowledge that at the same time that we can say, oh, and some men who are angry like the biggest shooter like do tremendous harm. It's not that complicated to yeah. be able to say there's anger that's productive and that forces social change. And also there's anger that does damage yeah. to other people. But we don't we, it's not easy for us to say that about women. We just think like angry, bitter shrews. Yes. And it's become so corrosive that I'm really thrilled that women are finding a way to talk about it. I'm so excited to um, read your book when it's ready um, about your research because you do such an impeccable job of really examining social stratification and how the web of different isms and phobias um, all connect as well as class. And um, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. I have one last question and then I know you need to go to relieve the babysitter from her job. are there any female candidates who you have been excited about or are looking at um, with hope or male candidates or transgender candidates? Yeah, well, there are a lot of women who I didn't know a lot about before last week because I wasn't totally immersed in the in the special elections. But, you know, looking at some of the women who won last week, including Danica Rome, who beat the transgender woman who beat the guy who pushed the transphobic bathroom bill, that was pretty exciting. The woman, Ashley Bennett in New Jersey, I think it's Ashley Bennett, um, who beat the guy who insulted women who went to the Women's March. And she's a woman of color who was like, okay, I'll run for your seat. And she beat him. Um, I mean, that's, that stuff is very exciting. Um, there are also, I've spent a lot of time in, in uh, Georgia. There's a gubernatorial election. There are two women running against each other. They are both named Stacy, Stacy Abrams, who I've reported on for a lot in the past. If elected, she'd be the first black woman governor. Um, and she's running against another, a fellow Democrat in the primary named Stacy Evans. Um, I'm, that's a pretty exciting race to watch because that is the ne- next frontier, folks, is like women running against other women, like as if they're just politicians, <laughs> you yes. know. Yes. Um, there are 
lots of candidates in local elections coming up in 2018. I'm actually working on a piece about that right now um, for the end of the year for New York Magazine that I'm pretty excited about. And then on a federal level, like, I mean, there are some young politicians who I think are pretty interesting. I mean, I, Kamala Harris is a pretty yes. interesting politician. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I have a lot of, m- I have many opinions, and not all of them bring a clear picture, but I think she's pretty fascinating and exciting yeah. to watch. Gillibrand, who I've ri- written about, yes. Christian Gillibrand. Um, obviously, I-, I love Elizabeth Warren. Um, she's a person whose politics are, you know, pretty close to to my view in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, there are lots of women out there who I'm really excited about. Thank you for, for raising your voice. It's um, such a, it's, it's really joyous to be able to read you. So thank you. Thank you so much. That's a lovely thing to say. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank Taylor Dalton and Nora Lind and everyone at ACAST for making Employee of the Month's podcast still possible. We have more episodes coming. Thank you for subscribing. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a very nice review on iTunes. I feel like I'm asking you to sign my yearbook, but it's worth it. I'm telling you, it's nice to leave something nice for someone else. Have a good one. I hope you're enjoying your work as much as anyone can right now and that it gives you some meaning because you need it. You deserve it. You do. Mm -hmm.